Welcome to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. Did you know that over 95% of all businesses fail within the first 10 years? By listening in to what Bob's guests have to say, plus direction from Bob Pritchard himself, it's our intention that you won't be among those statistics. Now, here's your host, Bob Pritchard. Hi, world. Welcome to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. We're the number one radio show in the world for entrepreneurs, and we're brought to you by the American Institute of Sales, Marketing, and Management. If you're listening for the first time, it's the radio program where we tell about business exactly as it is, and we're doing everything we can to assist entrepreneurs just by bringing you the latest information every week on what is happening in business throughout the world. We're brought to you by the American Institute of Sales, Marketing and Management, which is one of the leading accreditation institutes in the world. Having letters AISMM after my name has helped my career incredibly. And it always amazes me how many of my clients and colleagues that come to visit at the office look at my AISMM accreditation certificate on the wall. And I've also got a AISMM membership pin on my lapel that I get heaps of comments on. So um, if you're not a member already, join the American Institute of Sales, Marketing and Management now. Go to AISMM.org. Let's look at some of the week's news. Over the past few months, there's been a lot of people talking about the decline in the number of people you can reach for free on Facebook by posting to your page. So I thought we might have a look at why this reach is declining. Well, there's two main reasons. The first is that more and more content is being created and shared every day. The growth of content is phenomenal. Just a few years ago, sharing information was a relatively labor-intensive process. Today, with smartphones, it's just tap-tap or swipe-swipe, and uh, you're done. Let's go to the first one, content. On average, there are 1,500 stories that could appear on your news feed every time you log onto Facebook. Now, people log on 100 times a day, so that's a hell of a lot of um, stories. And for people that have got lots of friends and page likes, they can receive up to 15,000 potential stories every time they log on. So it's becoming harder and harder for any single story to gain exposure in newsfeed. And of course, in addition to the growth in content, the total number of pages liked by the typical Facebook user grew by more than 50% last year. And again, this increases competition in newsfeed even further. And the second reason involves how newsfeed works. Rather than showing people all the possible content, that's 1,500 to 15,000 new stories, Newsfeed's designed to show each person the content that's most relevant to you. So of the 1,500 plus stories that you can see when you log onto Facebook, Newsfeed displays about 300 of them. And Newsfeed does this by um, ranking each possible story looking at all of the factors that they've determined relative to you specifically. Now, there are lots of other online feed platforms that display all content in real time. 
But this has got some severe limitations as people, you know, we've only got so much time to consume stories. So people miss the stories that um, aren't the most important to them. So this means you don't see the content that you really want to see. You're looking at all this other crap instead. Now, fans make your ads much more effective. So when an ad has social context, that means when um, somebody sees that their friend likes your business, your ads drive about somewhere around 50% more recall and 35% higher online sales lift. So having your friends like a product is critically important to helping sell that product. Now, fans also make the ads that you run on Facebook much more efficient in, in the ads auction. Ads with social context are a signal of the positive quality of the ad, and that leads to um, better auction prices. You can also use um, insights about your fans, like where they live, what their likes and interests are, which enables you to make informed decisions about reaching your current and prospective customers. And of course, fans, if you've got a lot of fans, that also gives you, your business a lot more credibility. But you've got to bear in mind that while fans might represent your best customers, they don't represent all of your customers all of your or all of your potential customers, obviously. So... If you've got an auto dealership and you've got 5,000 fans, those fans represent only a fraction of the total number of people that could have interest in your business. So fans can help you achieve your business objectives on Facebook, but having fans should not be thought of you know, as an end to itself because it isn't. Facebook pages that publish content that teach people something, you know, that, um, that are entertaining, makes you think, or in some other way adds value to their lives, can still reach people on newsfeed. However, anticipating this organic reach can be really unpredictable. And having a piece of content go viral these days rarely relates to a business's core goals. It might be a snippet goes viral, but... Um, your business will see much greater value if you use Facebook to achieve specific business objectives. Like in any communication form, you need specific business objectives. Like, for example, you want to drive in-store sales or you want to boost app downloads. And just like TV or search or newspapers, radio, and virtually every other marketing program platform, um, Facebook's far more effective when businesses use paid media to help meet their goals. Your business won't always appear on the first page of a search result unless you're paying to be part of that space. Similarly, paid media on Facebook allows businesses to reach broader audiences more predictably and with much greater accuracy than organic content. So like any business... Using Facebook requires an understanding of the medium and the best way to achieve results. That's not any different than placing an ad in a newspaper. The placement matters, 
the size matters, and the wording certainly matters. Now, this next news story had to happen. With all of the comment about how information and photographs that you place on social media lives on forever and ever, and this can have a serious influence on both your social and professional life in the future. You know, most employers these days, or prospective employers, troll through social media to see what you've done and what sort of a person you are. So, you know, some of the stuff that people put up is a bit of a worry. And even if it's done harmlessly as a joke, uh, I know my son put a, um, a post up which was meant to be funny to his friends, but to somebody who wasn't one of his friends, it looked like a serious comment. And uh, that's not good. Now, Tinder, you know, that's the location-based dating app that lets you swipe yes on users you want to date, has announced that it's adding a feature called Moments, which will let users share Snapchat-like photos with their matches. And for the short term, you know, those passionate and impetuous romances that start off wonderfully today and are dead by tomorrow, the pictures will disappear within 24 hours. That's a good thing. (laughs) Moments is designed to help users get to know their matches better. So Tinder encourages you to swipe on the right on the people you find attractive and swipe left on those that you don't. If you and somebody else have mutually swiped right on one another, you have the opportunity to chat in a text box. Now, moments will be a part of this. I think that's pretty cool, and I think it's going to save some really embarrassing situations. So let me give you a couple of numbers that might surprise you. As you no doubt know, the US lost 58,000 troops in the Vietnam War. So that's lost 58,000 troops in the Vietnam War. And I'm sure that every single one of us is horrified by the fact that we lost these 58,000 troops in the war. I mean, 58,000 is a hell of a lot of people. You know, we do care about this, and it's evidenced by the wonderful Vietnam Memorial in Washington, D.C. The loss of 58,000 lives is an absolute tragedy. But are you equally horrified by, by the fact that 88 Americans got shot and killed, get shot and killed every day in America? So we lost 90 troops a day in Vietnam, and we're horrified, and we build this huge memorial. Yet, sorry, we lost eight people a day in Vietnam. Eight over the duration of the war. Eight soldiers were killed. We build a beautiful memorial. But 88 Americans get shot and killed every day with guns right here in America. That's 10 times more people are killed in the streets of America every day than were killed every day in Vietnam. So why aren't we screaming from the rooftops about this? I must admit the deafening silence across the country absolutely astounds me. Anyway, so I read this week about a new application that connects a rifle scope 
to a smartphone or Google Glass, and it absolutely filled me with trepidation. All we need in the United States is something that enables us to kill people more, more accurately, faster and easier. The only good thing, I guess, is if you think war ever solves anything, is that it has potential military uses. Tracking Point's precision-guided firearms app accurately mirrors the view from a rifle scope onto a selected mobile device or Google Glass. This provides a head-up display similar to what a fighter pilot sees in the cockpit. This allows any shooter to aim and fire from around corners and behind walls while still taking advantage of extreme cover. As I said, it's bloody horrifying. The US Army is um, testing it. So is the Air Force. So, I don't know. I guess technology is certainly making this place a much more livable, friendlier and better place. Not. Now, there's a lot of enthusiasm among device makers while we're talking about Google Glass for wearables, but the point is there still isn't enough apps out there to really make wearables interesting to people like me. Aside from Pebble's app market, which has about a 1,000 apps available, most of the other devices have less than 100 apps available. So that makes the wearable platform market Google's and Apple's to take. Both Google Play and the iOS App Store have over a million apps available and they've passed 50 billion cumulative downloads. Wow, that is a hell of a lot. These two App Store operators have all the pieces in place to dominate the wearable app market. So if Apple or Google can make it easy for developers to translate their phone and tablet apps into wearable apps, these two companies will absolutely dominate the wearables race. Now, Google's already hoping that Android Wear, its new Android-based wearables platform, will help create a mass-market wearables ecosystem. But it probably won't because it's... um, you know, there's so many new wearable devices launched recently and a whole bunch more that are about to launch, but all of them run on different platforms. It's a problem for developers to create apps for all these environments, and it's the apps that are going to make wearables worth wearing. Even Samsung, which runs its popular smartphones and tablets on Android, has elected to go with the Tizen platform for its Galaxy Gear smartwatch. Go figure. So app developers would be wise to focus on risk-worn devices in an attempt to break into the wearables app market because I think that's where the growth is going to be and uh, I think we'll find that riskware will make dominate up 70-80% of all wearables in the next five years. Of course, the um, likely the health and fitness category will produce the killer apps. Apple's new health book app announced last week offers a glimpse of an app that can combine data on fitness and physical activity and nutrition and vital signs. The whole field of personal fitness and health apps is going to boom as hardware matures and adds more advanced sensors, and we get more and more health conscious. Now, you're listening to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show, 
brought to you by the American Institute for Health, for health of Sales, Marketing and Management. I'll do that again. The American Institute of Sales, Marketing and Management. We're here to assist entrepreneurs to become successful. So if you have a question about any aspect of business, it doesn't matter what the hell it is, please don't hesitate to email me at bob at bobpritchard.com and we'll answer it on air or we'll email you directly. After the break, I'm going to be speaking with Jamie Beckland. He is a really good guy and very funny. The VP of Marketing and Customer Services at Janrain and he's been delivering custom web solutions for more than 10 years and he built his first social media community in 2004. Jamie's regarded as an industry expert and frequently speaks about technology trends, writing for Mashable, Social Media Examiner, iMedia Connection, Ad Age, and a bunch of other publications. Jamie is a smart little duck. You're listening to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show on Voice America Business, brought to you by the American Institute of Sales, Marketing and Management, and I'll be back with Jamie in just a moment. Do you want your business to achieve results you never thought possible? Bob Pritchard is recognized as the business leader's advisor and has 30 years of experience as a straight-talking troubleshooter for Fortune 500 companies and SMEs across the world. Whether you need a checkup across all departments of your business or simply want to improve marketing, advertising, performance measurement, or some other area, Bob Pritchard will work his magic so you can blow away your competition. Bob Pritchard is also one of the most in-demand speakers in the world. Over 1,500 clients on five continents and countless standing ovations are a testament to how he changes the fortunes of business. Pick up Bob's new book, Kick-Ass Business and Marketing Secrets, at your nearest bookstore or visit Bob's website at www.bobpritchard.com. Remember, if you want to be successful, call Bob Pritchard now. Worldwide phone numbers and more information can be found at bobpritchard.com. You are listening to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. To connect with Bob, please send an email to bob at bobpritchard.com. That's bob at bobpritchard.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show, brought to you by the American Institute for Sales, Marketing, and Management. And welcome also to this segment of the show where we interview successful entrepreneurs. You know, people who are extremely interesting. I mean, there's a lot of boring people in the world, but entrepreneurs aren't amongst them. And uh, entrepreneurs have got something to share with other entrepreneurs that can help us all become a lot more successful. In this segment, we try to work out what makes these successful people tick so that we can learn from both the things that have made them successful and also for the challenges that they faced along the way and learning how they overcame those challenges. It's really interesting that when I speak, it doesn't matter whether I'm giving a, a, a talk in Moscow or whether it's in Los Angeles or in Sydney or in Hong Kong. After the presentation, the questions are always the same. It doesn't matter what sort of government or what sort of regulations are imposed. 
the questions are all the same. If you're in business and you're an entrepreneur in particular, you face the same problems as every other entrepreneur. Now, one success story is Jamie Beckland. He's the VP of Marketing and Customer Success at Janrain, and he's been delivering customer web solutions for more than 10 years. He built his first social media community in 2004. Prior to joining Janrain, he led the emerging media practice at Whitehorse and has worked as a marketer and a technologist with companies like Coca-Cola, Samsung, Wells Fargo, the Brooking Institution and many others. Jamie frequently speaks about technology trends and rights for Mashable, Social Media Examiner, iMedia Connection, AdAge and other publications. So he spends his days and his nights writing for all these publications and somehow he manages to fit in being a very successful marketing and customer success VP. That's a pretty cool trick. I like that. He's also a good guy. Hi, Jamie. How are you? Hi, Bob. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. Um, This is a bit off the track, but a lot of graduates are coming out of college right now and trying to determine whether they should go to an established legacy company, you know, for want of a better word, one of the traditional companies, uh, for a couple of years or join the ranks of entrepreneurs and, you know, join a startup or an early stage company. As someone who's worked for both traditional companies and early stage companies, what would you recommend they do? My son's one of these. He's, um, he's got a great offer from a traditional, very big, very successful company, um, but his heart's telling him that he should really go to Silicon Valley and get amongst it. What, what do you think? Well, you know, my advice a couple of years ago may have been a little different. I mean, a few years ago, the big recession you know, there weren't necessarily lots of opportunities in corporate America. So I think it was a great (laughs) chance to take advantage of uh, a natural push uh, towards entrepreneurship. Now it's a little bit different. I guess if you're coming out of college and you think B2B uh, is going to be an important focus area for you, it's something you're interested in, you need to really understand the language of the businesses uh, that you're serving uh, or that you want to serve. So getting you know, a little bit of experience in a corporate environment is certainly going to help there. And I, I don't mean forever, you know, 18, 24 months, that's usually enough to get the language and the vocabulary and see some of the business problems. If you feel more attracted to consumer technologies or if you feel more con- uh, uh, in touch with um, getting to know your own customers, uh, then, you know, there's really nothing standing in your way. And I guess I'd say that in the history of the world, there's never been a better time to be an entrepreneur. I mean, you have access to tools. You have access to uh, resources. You have access to planning and and sequencing processes. And you have access to a community of like-minded individuals uh, that can can help you be successful there. And the startup costs now are so low that you can really wait to find that really, really – uh, that right idea before blowing it up. Yeah, I, I think that's true. At the at the moment, I think also working for entrepreneurs is the fact that um, uh, both business and consumers are looking for a more effective and more efficient, easier way to do business than a lot of the um, uh, inefficiencies and the dreadful customer service that we've had from most legacy companies over a long period of time. 
Yeah, I think that's so true. I mean, there's never been more disruption, and that's because we have new technologies, but we also have people, individuals. I mean, we can talk about customers, consumers, users, but at the end of the day, we're all just people. And from that standpoint, it it should be very easy to see, to look at another person and say, what do you care about? Uh, You know, how can I help you? Yeah. So let's talk about your role at Genrain. Um, You... um what exactly is a VP of marketing and customer success? I have, sure. I know, I know what marketing is. <laughs> you know, I got that bit right. But um, customer success—that's an interesting way to put delivering customer service, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. I actually think it's um, probably the best phrasing uh, for this type of a function. So really that my responsibility covers making sure that our customers uh, are successful. And so that's not just about one aspect of, of uh, our relationship with the customer. It's really holistic. And that's why I like the word customer success. It gives uh, me and my team the ability to connect with the customer in all of the most relevant ways, whether that be from helping them uh, determine what are the right sort of business objectives for us to tackle together um, to uh, finding new opportunities for new functionality, new features that the customer would find useful that that we could offer to them Um, all the way to, you know, making sure that from uh, scaling to meet, you know, when they have marketing campaigns that have tens of millions of users, you know, that our uh, systems are ready for that uh, scaling capability. So it covers a huge, range of, of needs that a customer has. But at the end of the day, you know, my scorecard is based on whether the customer uh, feels like they're better off using our technology. Uh, and so, you know, I think that if they're successful, I'm successful. And that's why I love this term, customer success. So what exactly does Genrain do? What, what services do they provide to um, their customers? Yeah, so Genrain focuses on... Um, helping websites and brands get to know their customers so they can personalize every marketing interaction. Um, And we do that through registration and profile management. So if you've ever been to a website and you've filled out a username and password and a a registration form, or if you've done something a little bit easier uh, using your Facebook account or your Google account or Twitter, LinkedIn, and other social identity providers to log into a website, you may have interacted with one of our services. And then we manage all the data that comes back about users or uh, customers. And then we integrate that into the rest of the marketing technology stack for the customers. So, so the website can deliver a personalized experience uh, to their customers. So you know all about me, right? <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah, well, you know, it's interesting because uh, there's a lot of publicly available uh, data on social profiles. You know, I'm sure, you know, sure. your your Twitter place, Twitter feed is probably the, one of the best first places to look about uh, understanding a little bit more about Bob. Yeah, you can find out a lot about who your users are. Um, but, you know, we always talk about this notion that uh, the user always has to decide what identity they're going to use to log into your website. So they know what data they have in their social profile, and they're always going to want to make sure that you know, the, the experience that you're offering to them uh, is valuable in exchange for the, the data that, you're going to, that they're going to give up. The single sign-on, how does single sign-on help marketers? How does that 
work exactly? Yeah, so single sign-on is this notion of using an identity that you already have, like your Facebook account, your Google account, and right. others, and uh, logging into the website. Uh, so instead of having to remember a complicated password with capital letters and your dog's name and numbers and special characters, you know, yeah. uh, we ran a survey in 2013 that said 40% of consumers would rather clean their toilet than create a new username and password. So, you know, from a usability perspective, you can see how hated passwords really are. Oh. And then from a a security right. perspective, right? Oh, yeah. I know. It's just, it's one of those things. If you think about how do you manage your passwords, you know, I've heard people, you know, write them down on a piece of paper or, you know, keep a file on their desktop. I mean, none of these are really elegant ways to solve. Um, I must have 40 passwords. I've got pa different passwords for everything. And because I travel a lot and I've got a couple of residents in a couple of different countries, I've got different passwords all over the place. And it's, you know, when... Um, I must be getting old because I'll sit there and I'll look at something and I think, what the fuck is the password for this? You know, <laughs> Jesus, I just can't remember. So, uh -huh. okay, tell me about it. Exactly. So, so in that context, the notion of using an identity that you already have, like your, uh, one of your social identities, and using it instead of a password, you can, you can start to see the benefit for the user, right? I mean, users... Uh, have a simpler way to get into a website. The data that comes on their profile gets passed over to the website so they have less forms to fill out. It just gets them through the process so much easier and faster. And people really love it. How secure is it, though? I mean, it, is it, you know, I sort of work on the basis that I've got 40 different passwords, and while I can't remember what the hell they are, at <laughs> least if somebody busts one, I've still got 39 that they haven't busted. Um, <laughs> so yeah, exactly. Well, and, you, and i got to say, Bob, you're in the minority because most people oh. rotate through four or five passwords, right? So they're using password, the same password in multiple places. Uh, so good on you, but, uh, but obviously that's a management nightmare. The security question, I think it's really, really important. Uh, I think especially if you look at uh, you know, heart bleed, you have uh, SSL vulnerabilities that people are finding all over the Internet. Um, the, the identity providers, obviously, they care a lot about these issues of security. And uh, I was talking with um, somebody at Google uh, last week, and you know, their statement was they have over 1,000 people working every day on uh, security of accounts. And you know, when you look at it in those terms, I mean, Google touches hundreds of millions of customers, and yeah. they have you know, thousands of um, attacks every single day. And obviously, they've built an infrastructure to protect those accounts in a very, very hard, robust way. Yeah. Those accounts end up being so secure um, and, and you know, probably much more secure than any individual website or brand uh, could think about doing on their own. So it ends up being much more secure because you're using an identity that's so hard. Right. <laughs> you, on one hand, you make me feel good, and then you, you know, bring me down on the other. Good. Um, tell me about some of the personalized experience that marketers can build when they um, embrace customer profile management. Yeah, I, I think it's a, a great uh, vision sort of question, right? Most of the time, the very concrete, practical first step for personalizing communications is in the channels that you're already doing. Right. So, you know, think about email. Um, email is something that most of us have an email subscription service. We're managing email lists. Uh, but 
if you can find an easy way to start to segment your audience using some of the data on that customer profile. And instead of uh, the same message to everyone, you can start to version or nuance that message. Um, that becomes an immediate way to see some additional value. Uh, Universal Music Group went through this process with us, and they saw huge increases when they stopped uh, you know, sending everyone the same message and instead yeah. looked at the bands and the musicians that you cared about and sent you emails about those bands. I mean, it seems like a very obvious uh, value prop, but you know, most people are, are starting at that level. Then you start to think about how do I personalize the website experience, right? And we have this notion uh, that's a little bit out of date now that uh, a website is a consistent experience for everyone. Well, when you go to Facebook, it's not like that. Everyone has their own unique perspective on the Facebook homepage. Yes. Websites more and more are starting to become more personalized. And that doesn't mean that you know, everyone gets their own website, but you can start to find elements on the website. You've probably noticed if you've been to um, a, a newspaper website at the bottom of the article, recommendations right. for other articles that are similar or that you might enjoy. Sure. That's a perfect opportunity to start integrating more uh, of the customer profile into those recommendations. And then, you know, if you really want to think far out, you can start to think about um, things where you're looking at that same customer across devices. So they log into the desktop, and then they go over to your mobile app. And right. what data do you want to move into that mobile app experience and start to personalize with push notifications or SMS or other, other channels that you're starting to look into um, these portable devices to uh, communicate in a more real-time way with your customers? Is that um, <clears throat> that that I think we've all tried to personalise messages, even when we're doing sort of bulk. I remember back in the days when we used to do bulk mailouts, and even when we did bulk mailouts, we tried to segment this mass of people into little categories and and send them out slightly different, um, whatever the communication was. It's so much easier now. Is it expensive to for a company that um, is talking to a lot of people? Um, is it expensive to get a service like yours that enables people to um, to profile much more um, accurately and take into um, account all this information? Right. It's not typically. It's not a huge investment if you're looking at, uh, you know, if you're looking at pennies per user in that range. Right. Uh, and that's, you know, over the course of 15, 20, 30, 40 communications over the course of the year. That's amortized also. So it ends sure. up being, you know, a fraction uh, uh, of the overall. Yeah. yeah, of the overall investment that you're making. But the other thing is that you know this notion of personalization at scale. I think that's part of what you're talking about, and it's an interesting idea because if we think you know back uh, to direct mail days, and you know you could start to you could do tests, right, and you could try yep. to pilot to different kinds of audiences. Um, but when you really well. <laughs> exactly, but when you get into tens of millions of users, right, uh, how do you really manage? that kind of personalization and that kind of communication. I mean, it's really only in the last two or three years that we've been able to, you know, honestly ask ourselves those kind of questions because we've had the tool set to be able to answer them. Yeah. What, what categories are using um, these personalized experiences most? Is it e-commerce or publishing or consumer brands or who's using it the most? Yeah, it's, um, 
it's actually a really interesting cross-section. So there are uh, businesses that have a traditional understanding of the importance of the customer relationship. So you think about publishers or TV channels, uh, cable cable TV providers, um, as well as content creators. Anyone who understands the notion of an audience has a built-in understanding of how important it is to know who your users are, who your customers are. Uh, then you look at product companies, consumer electronics, uh, people who used to uh, send out warranty cards with their, um, with their device purchases and ask you to please fill out that warranty card and send that back. Right? That whole process has moved online now. And then uh, CPG is actually very active here. Uh, these guys are a little bit different because they have not had the opportunity historically to have that direct relationship with the consumer, right? They always had a retailer yeah. that was selling yeah. that product. Yeah. Um, but so they really see the benefit of building that direct relationship. So then they can communicate uh, in the ways and uh, that make the most sense for the brand. It also enables you to get um, much more accurate feedback, I guess, because people are addressing specific issues rather than just generalizations, aren't they? Yeah, that's really true. Um, it, it's, uh, I think, you know, one of the challenges that we've had in marketing is that we sort of blend together all of the individuals into this notion of a persona. And yeah. then we're going out to create messaging and marketing programs for this sort of, you know, white, this gray kind of undifferentiated, um, sort of hazy, out of focus idea of a persona. Yeah. And the reality is that each one of us are unique individuals. And we, yes. you know, some of us read email at four in the morning and some of us read it at 11 at night. Um, and so, you know, being able to have that two-way dialogue with individuals ends up making their relationship with the brand so much more meaningful. Because in the old days, I remember in the old days, 20 years ago, you'd, um, you'd say that people between... Um, our, our target market's people between 27 and 32 and they live in a, a certain suburb and, um, you know, they, and you tar them all with the same brush um, and then when you go out to the suburb you find somebody's got a Volvo and somebody's got a Ferrari and somebody's got a white picket fence and the bloke next door who earns the same amount of money who's got the same sort of social profile, if you like, um, hates fences and they go to different restaurants and they eat different food and we used to lump them all into one sort of group and treat them all the same. And that's a big advantage of where technology has taken us today. Yeah, that's right. Uh, you know, this notion of demographics being yeah, ridiculous. the pinnacle of, of marketing, I mean, it's just outdated at this point. Yeah. More and more, we like to look at psychographics. What are somebody's behaviors? What are their interests? What are they talking about? You know, who are they yeah, talking right. to? And you, you find that those affinity groups end up being much more relevant to, um, to a marketing message than these sort of generic ideas of you know, people in certain age ranges or living in a certain location. And the other thing is that those um, affinity groups are very diverse in terms of you know, age ranges. I mean, I think this notion of a digital, a digital native is a perfect example. Somebody who's a digital native, we all have this idea in, their, uh, in our minds that they grew up you know, using iPads and you know, using tablet devices, learning how to type before they learned how to walk and that sort of thing. Yeah. But, but 
there's a group of us that sort of bring that dig digital native perspective, digital first, um, into uh, all of their interactions, but they're a little bit older, right? So those people actually have more in common with each other than they do with other people in their sort of in their peer group in terms of age. Yeah, I think that that's absolutely true. So why is social logging a big deal for the big social platforms like Facebook, Google, Twitter? What data are they getting? Or are they just scooping up everything, like the Japanese fishermen scoop up everything in the ocean and keep the bits you want and let all the rest go or kill them, whatever they do? Yeah, no, this is actually a really important area, um, especially if you're an entrepreneur uh, or you own your own business and you're worried, what is Facebook or what is Google going to see about my customers? And the answer is, uh, this is really a one-way relationship. The identity provider, the social network, is pushing data to the website, but they don't get any data back from the website. Of course, they, they do know one thing. They do know that this user logged into a specific website. Sure. So they do, they do get that information, but that's really it. Um, really the value for, for them is around branding and around um, having their, their functionality, their capabilities available on so many different websites. Um, and when you think about services you know, like these large identity providers that, that most users use for an hour or two hours a day, having that top of mind awareness for them all the time, it's become so important to them. So it ends up being an important part of you know, how they feel like they're doing a service to their users and, and staying top of mind all the time. Right. Um, Facebook recently said that um, it'll support anonymous logging. Um, what does Facebook's anonymous um, login mean to marketers? What's that going to mean? Yeah, I think it's a great um, opportunity for marketers to look more holistically at, at this customer journey. And when you think about a customer journey, there's, there's an inflection point where the customer moves from being an anonymous customer to a known customer. Usually yeah. that's a login event. Right. And what, what Facebook is doing is they're making that line very blurry because what they're saying is, you know, if we'll give you a unique identifier, but it's going to be high quality information about the user when they do end up converting. And if you compare that to how a lot of marketers work now, they take data from different sources and they take third party cookies and they take all these different, uh, you know, tools and technologies sure. and then they try to unify it on the back end. I mean, the match rates are horrible. You know, you're looking at basically a coin toss of whether somebody's the same person between one system and another. So Facebook is saying, look, the user is going to be in control now. The user is going to get to decide what information they're sharing with the website. And it gives users a lot more comfort. So I think there's a lot of benefit there. And it also puts marketers in the position of needing to ask, is the experience that I'm offering to this customer valuable enough to get the information that I want about who this user is. So, you know, we're going to have an increasingly um, robust conversation about what users care about because we're going to need to offer them real value in order to get the data that we, it, that's important to run our businesses. I, this, it seems to me that on all of us there's this unbelievable amount of data. They know absolutely everything about us anyway. Um, because every time we buy something, most of these companies these days, particularly the, the newer uh, companies, are across everything. And so we're, we're feeding back 
you know, all our patterns. We, they know all about us socially. They know all about us from a family structure. They know all about what we buy. They've got all that data now. Um, why should we trust them? Yeah, I think it's um, overall, I think it's a question of um, what you're giving up and what you're getting in return. And I think uh, you've seen um, over the last several years, you've seen different people make different decisions. And you've seen some large organizations uh, screw it up. I mean, Sony PlayStation lost a lot of confidence and trust when um, they had uh, some hacking issues with their credit card system, right? Target just had a data breach. Yeah, Yeah, I mean, so this stuff is in in the public eye every day. there's uh, you know, a couple of ways, a couple of attitudes that individuals have, have decided to, to, to adopt towards this. One is um, I am going to accept or um, be, get, get comfortable with the idea that anywhere online, um, the data that I share might end up in, um, uh, in a nefarious place. So I'm not right. going to share anything that I don't feel comfortable with might get out. Right? So yeah. that's one approach. Um, I think what we're seeing, though, is uh, that the value exchange for most users most of the time is positive. And, you know, you look at somebody like a Google, for example, that offers email services and targeted content and Google Drive and a whole host of other services, uh, mostly for free. Uh, users are, are feeling like, okay, having some data about me is worth it uh, to get access to those services. And uh, as long as that value exchange keeps increasing and people feel like they're getting more and more uh, for the data that they're giving up, I think you'll see users continue to opt in. Now, obviously, when it, when it comes to um, security, if there's ever an issue or a question there, it's going to cause that, um, that calculation that users have gone through to come into sharp relief. Um, so you know, th- it's important that these systems and all of the large players do have uh, systems to be able to you know, delete or wipe your profile out. And I think that's another sign of um, the level of trust that users have in those services is that you don't, you don't hear those talked about or used very often. Okay. Very quick last question. What's the future to, for digital identity? Yeah, so I think we're uh, entering an era where digital identity becomes a fundamental part of uh, our, uh, our everyday identity. And there was some question, uh, you know, even as, as much as three or four years ago, about whether the Internet would fundamentally be an anonymous place or whether it would be a known place. And, um, you know, I'm, there's always going to be corners of the Internet or opportunities for people to be anonymous online. So don't right. get me wrong there. That, that the protection of the free speech and being able to speak anonymously, I mean, that's going back for hundreds of years as being an important um, part of uh, civil society. Sure. But I think by and large what we're finding is that uh, my life as uh, an individual user of the Internet is better when more and more systems and services know who I am. So I think we're going to keep marching down that path, and especially as we start to think about the Internet of Things and devices that are you know, sort of attached to us or attached to you know, our home in a very uh, persistent way, those things are going to have to be connected to our identity in a deep way. Yeah, sure. Jamie Beckland, thank you very much for being on the Bob Pritchard Radio Show on Voice America Business. 
It was great to talk to you. I really appreciate it. Now, if you'd like to know more about Janrain, go to Janrain, J-A-N-R-A-I-N.com. You're listening to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show on the Voice America Business Network, and I'll be back with you right after this short break. Stocks, bonds, investment opportunities, financial news, and talk. We can help. Call us now toll-free, 866-472-5790. 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. Listening to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. To connect with Bob, please send an email to Bob at BobPritchard.com. That's Bob at BobPritchard.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to the Bob Pritchard Straight Talking, absolutely no bullshit business radio show. Brought to you by the American Institute for Sales, Marketing, and Management on the Voice America Business Network. Don't forget, um, if you miss a show, you can catch up on all the old shows, all three years of them, on the archives at uh, Voice America Business. So go to the archives and every show's there or go onto my website, which is bobpritchard.com and all the shows are there as well. Now, the reason this email segment's so popular is that it doesn't matter where you are in the world, doesn't matter whether you've got a big business or a little business, doesn't matter what you do, we all have the same issues. You know, I just got off the phone um, before the show with a fellow in Israel, and, uh, you know, the questions that he asked me were the same questions I got asked yesterday in Los Angeles. So we all have the same challenges. It doesn't matter whether you're a plumber a retailer, a landscape gardener, or maybe you've got a dry cleaner. Now, the first email this week is from Jamie Crookshank of Providence, Rhode Island, who writes, Dear Bob, I've been looking for a job and I've been going to interviews, social mixes, and as many industry events as I can to meet as many people as possible. What do I need to do in order to make sure that I make a knockout first impression? Incidentally, I bought your book, Kick-Ass Business and Marketing Secrets, and I love it. Well, that's good. Dear Jamie, um, most people are going to judge you within the first second of meeting you, and their opinion will probably never change. You know, once they get into their head that you're a certain sort of person, that sticks. So the old thing about you only get one shot at creating a great first impression is absolutely true. So how can you assure people are judging you the way you want to be judged and are actually seeing your best side? You know, if you're not authentic, it shows through. So you don't want to give people an impression that's not authentic and because uh, most people can intuitively think, ah, ah, this guy's a fake. I don't know how many times you've thought that, but I've thought it a million so anytime you meet someone for the first time, you always want to start on the right foot. 
So let, let's just do quick five ways that you can make sure that people's first impression of you is a good one. Um, the most important thing to do is to clearly understand what your intention is of the meeting. Now, it depends whether it's you're going for an interview or whether you're um, trying to sell somebody something or whether it's a social meeting or whether it's a networking event or whatever it is. Um, you want to clearly know what your intention is from this meeting. So, um, and particularly now when you're looking for a job and you're going to networking events and you're trying to meet as many people as possible and have them all go home thinking that um, that Jamie, what a hell of a good person um, he or she is. I'm not sure, Jamie, whether you're a male or a female, but um, they want, you want them to think that you're a good person. So as you get ready or when you're driving to the function or the meeting, think about what kind of action, interactions you really want to have. Now, what do I want to achieve? What do I want to do? What is it important? What is important for me to get across? And uh, this can be a really grounding experience and works very well to focus on, you know, the sort of energy you want to leave people with. So that's the first thing. Have a clear view of what you're intending to get out of each meeting you go to. Secondly, think about how you look. You know, um, think about your clothes. Do they match the environment, the surroundings? Um, or do you want to stand out? Maybe you just want to be the one person in the um, in the group that looks different. If you're a woman, make sure your makeup and your jewellery is appropriate, not too much, just enough. And, uh, of course, watches and shoes are very important because people definitely take into account these when making initial judgments. I know I always look, not so much at shoes, but I always look at people's watches. I don't know why. I've got a watch fetish. But um, I always look at watches and think, hmm, good watch, classy individual. So many men do not, don't realise that their watch, iron shirts and clean shoes can say a hell of a lot about them. For women, purses and large earrings and jewellery can also indicate a lot to a new person that you're meeting. So all these things make an impression. So make sure that what you're wearing and how you do your hair or your makeup or how you act says what you want it to say to the people that you're meeting with. Thirdly, you've got to be conscious of your body language. Body language is a crucial part of first impressions. Everything from your posture to how you carry yourself to the way you're angry your body, they all count. Now, Always look in the eyes of the person that you're meeting. Always look straight into their eyes and uh, offer your hand for a handshake. Now, when you shake hands, don't crush their bloody fingers. Really important. Don't be wimpy either. So a nice, firm handshake, but not so that it does damage to their fingers for life. Now, often, and, and make sure you've got an open posture. You know, don't sit there with your arms folded or hands on your hips. Make sure you've got an open posture. Again, look in their eyes, but um, simply being aware of your body language can often result in a connection. There's, you know, sort of the subconscious cues that you need to keep in mind include 
noticing where you point your feet, sitting up straight. Don't cross your legs across in front of the person because that suggests you're putting up a barrier. But sit up straight, that's pretty important. Walk tall. Um, The position of your shoulders. Keep your shoulders back. Don't hunch them forward. Fourthly, don't let any negative emotions show. I know people who go to meetings and cocktail events and mixes after having a really bad day tend to continually have a bad day and they reflect that. If you're in a depressed or an anxious mood, others will pick up on this just from your tone, from your facial expressions, from your comments, from your body language. They'll pick it up. So if you're having a bad day, Find a way to snap out of it before you go to the meeting. Focus forward on the goal of the meeting, not back on what happened during your crappy day. The next point is you've, you've got to be interested and interesting. If you're truly interested in meeting people and are opening to, you know, open to learning about who they are, they will get this in the first impression. When you're meeting people for the first time, You need to have a genuine interest in who they are. So apart from just trying to sell them something or whatever you're trying to do, be interested in who they are. This is, it's contagious and you'll have better conversations and lasting connections when you're interested because they become interested. Jamie, since you've got a copy of Kick-Ass Business and Marketing Secrets, How to Blitz Your Competition, I will send you a copy of Marketing Magic, a book I wrote a few years ago that is just as relevant now as when I wrote it. I think think you'll love it. We've got a new sponsor here at the Bob Pritchard Radio Show, the American Institute of Sales, Marketing and Management. So if you want the world to know that you're a force to be reckoned with, you must join now. I've been a member since 2002, and you'll be amazed how AISMM can open doors that you can't. So... Apply now. Go to AISMM.com. Now, don't forget, I want to hear from you. So visit my website at BobPritchard.com. Sign up for my newsletter. Email me. Tweet me. Tell me what it is that you want me to talk about or who you want me to interview. So thanks for listening to the Bob Pritchard No Bullshit Business Radio Show for Entrepreneurs. And remember... If you're serious about being successful, this is the place to come every week at the same time. This is Bob Pritchard on the Voice America Business Network, brought to you by American Institute of Sales, Marketing and Management, and I hope you have a fantastic, brilliant week. You've been listening to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. Please join us again next Tuesday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Until then, enjoy another week of success in your business and your life.